So hello everyone. Thank you for joining us today for our sixth webinar in the New Arab webinar series, focusing on the upcoming US presidential election. The New Arab is a progressive and diverse London-based news organization covering the MENA region with a focus on democratic transition, human rights, and social and economic justice. Additionally, we're focused on issues that matter to the global community. And this webinar is part of our special coverage of the US elections. Um, also for our audience today, just so they know, we are looking to hear from Arab Americans and their views and concerns when it comes to the upcoming elections. So please do reach, uh, reach out to us. We have a call for submissions on our Twitter at the underscore new Arab. So let's dive in. Um, it's not an exaggeration to say that all eyes are on the U.S. as we fast approach November 3rd. The two candidates, incumbent President Donald Trump and the Democratic candidate, former Vice President Joe Biden, represent two different visions, not only for Americans, but also for America's foreign policy. Amidst a climate of widespread disinformation, increasing polarization, a global pandemic, and rising conflict and unrest, there is much at stake. So the outcome of this election, as I mentioned, will not only have an impact on domestic issues, but could potentially result in even more grave consequences for US foreign policy in the near and Middle East. We'll be focusing on conversation today on Arab and Muslim Americans and the questions they may have concerning both candidates and their policies at home and abroad. And we do want to make it clear, we understand there's a difference between Arab and Muslim communities we recognize that there are lots of Arabs who are not Muslim and lots of Muslim Americans who are not Arab. So we're not generalizing here. Um, let me introduce to you our wonderful panelists. We have Dahlia Fahmi, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at Long Island University, a senior non-resident fellow at the Center for Global Policy in Washington, DC, and a visiting scholar at the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights at Rutgers University. She's also the author of The Rise of the Alt-Right, Understanding the Sociocultural Effects of Mainstreaming Anti-Muslim Sentiment. We have Joe Macron. He is a fellow at the Arab Center, Washington, DC, primarily focusing his research on US strategy and politics, international relations, and conflict analysis in the Middle East. Macron's previous analyst roles include the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point and the Colin Powell Center for Policy Studies. A former journalist, he has also advised the IMF on public engagement in the Middle East and served in different capacities in the United Nations system. Omar Badr is a Palestinian American political analyst based in Washington, DC. Previously, he served as the deputy director of the Arab American Institute, executive director of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee in Massachusetts, and was a digital producer and presenter with Al Jazeera's The Stream. He holds a master's degree in political science with research focusing on US policy toward Palestine and Israel. And last but not least, we have Halid Bedoun, a native of Detroit, is a leading scholar in national security, on national security, the war on terror and civil rights. He's associate professor of law and associate director of civil rights and social justice at the Damon J. Keith Center for Civil Rights at Wayne State University. Bedoun is also the author of the critically acclaimed book, American Islamophobia, Understanding the Roots and the Rise of Fear. And he serves on Michigan Advisory Committee of the US Commission for Civil Rights. Um, just to let everyone also know, Khalid may have to leave uh, the webinar a little early. So the first hour will consist of me asking questions to each panelist and they'll have a few minutes to respond. And the other panelists are free to jump in if they have anything um, they'd like to add. 
Uh, we'll see where the conversation goes, and we hope to touch on you know various topics such as free speech, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, Palestine, and what the war on terror could look like with a new administration. And then we'll open the floor to our audience for Q&A. So the first question I'm going to direct to all of the panelists, and we'll we'll start with the order of introduction. Um, so Dahlia, Joe, Omar, and Khalid. Um, as I mentioned, you know, Arab and Muslim communities in the U.S. are very, very diverse. We are not, you know, a monolithic block. The American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee states that 64% of Arab Americans identify as Christian and 24% identify as Muslim. And within that, there's also diversity in terms of, you know, ethnicity and other breakdowns of socioeconomic status. Um, how do you uh, see members of the communities voting in the upcoming elections and what issues do you think matter to them? So Dahlia, we can go ahead and start with you on that one. Sure, so first, thank you for having me and letting me join um, such an esteemed panel. Um, so the, the Arab American community has, we can say, matured um, statistically in terms of how they approach elections. Historically, the primary issues were usually foreign policy. Um, but over time, especially since 2000 um, and the 2000 election, the move has gone more towards domestic politics and really domestic policy that affects everyday life. So as a demographic, Arab Americans reflect the interest of America in general. Um, Arab Americans are voting on, on health care, on domestic politics, on gun violence. Um, but if we look at them um, as a community, they're also very passionate about the social justice and civil rights issues. So Arab Americans historically while they might have been the, the fulcrum or the, the temperature gauge has been foreign policy, it's not that that's been removed, but it's been um, kind of put on the back burner and the front burner now is domestic politics um, and policy that affects everyday life. So you will see Arab Americans voting economically, voting socially, um, voting their interest as Americans, voting health care, voting gun policy. Um, and so I think that level of maturity has moved the fulcrum from simply foreign policy to a community that leans more democratic, um, depending on where they live and what the interest and, and the framing is. But overall, Arab Americans reflect the social um, interest of, of America in general. So I, I think continuing to see Arab Americans as, as measuring their interests differently than the average American is, is, um, is missing the kind of dynamics of, of this population as a whole. Thank you. Joe, what, what do you think, um, you know, the issues of, are of concern for the Arab American community? Yeah, we forgot the first uh, rule of uh, unmuting the uh, the phone. Uh, thanks for having me, and I agree with uh, uh, most of what Daria said. Uh, there was a transformative moment, I think, in how the Arab and the Muslim American community view. First one was obviously 9-11. And second, I think now we have, with the emergence of, of Trump, you have a, a new generation now, which is more involved, is more on the left side. Uh, Trump uh, 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 rhetoric on immigration, on Israel, also have shifted a lot of this mood uh, in this community. But it's also part of the larger American concern, the coronavirus, the economy, the healthcare. They are not detached from, from their, from their uh, immediate environment. Uh, and they are in some swing states. We have around 200,000, I think, in, in Michigan. Uh, especially around Durban, and we have also 100,000 in, in Minnesota, another swing state, 
uh, upcoming now. Uh, Biden did some late effort to reach out to them. Obviously, Trump, he doesn't need to do this because of this uh, big gap between the, both sides. Uh, but but I think we are going into a period now where a lot of them are going to be voting Democratic. Obviously, huge of them are Bernie Sanders supporters uh, on the left, and most probably they will go for Biden. Uh, we don't know the percentage yet. Uh, so I, I think, like many uh, minority voting, it's, it's going Democrat now, and this is part of the larger trend in the country. So, if I mean, obviously, I I agree with most of what's been said as well. I just think that there's an interesting layer of detail to add here in terms of the Arab American community. Just to add a little bit more context, before the year 2000, was roughly split even between Republican and Democrat. Um, in fact, George W. Bush's election in the year 2000, um, th there was a huge Arab American turnout for him in Florida, and that may very well, you know, you could actually argue that this is the reason why George W. Bush if you can even say he won the election, I know that the details are disputed and everything, but had it not been for that massive turnout, it would be almost certain that Al Gore would have been president in 2000. And something happened with 9-11, um, and that was primarily the domestic backlash that happened on the right side of the aisle against the Arab American community and the American Muslim community. The violations of, the civil, of civil rights, the rounding up of Arab Americans, there was a huge assault on the community that the Republican Party enabled. Um, and that was a huge part of the reason why we've seen this massive shift from Republicans to Democrats, where um, the most recent polling I've seen shows that Arab Americans are two to one uh, Democrats. So it's, it's become decisive. And obviously, as Donald Trump continues the uh, escalating the assault on the community, that we can very much imagine that these numbers are going to be shifting in an even greater direction. But oddly enough, that is not to say that there isn't a segment of the community that's still supportive of Trump. I think a lot of people who do uh, some of the phone banking in certain areas with high Arab American concentrations are often surprised at the fact that they talk to people who, um, for very narrow interests, you know, for either tax cuts or, or, or what have you, still feel like it's better to throw their lot behind Donald Trump. But obviously, that's increasingly a very tiny minority um, within, within the community. And part of that shift towards the Democratic Party. It's not even just about the party itself, but it's created this uh, growing movement uh, of, of tying the struggles of the Arab American community here within the US and as well as our foreign policy concerns as far as US policy in the region in the broader progressive movements um, and, and other progressive causes and seeing that there is a common cause in, in working um, along, you know, alongside each other in advance of a different kind of world and a different kind of politics. Uh, and can, I just, uh, yes, go ahead. Just very quick, uh, very quick point. I don't want to cut Khaled before he speaks. I think also Iran is, is, is the driving point for a lot of people. That they want Trump to be aggressive on Iran. And there's some portion of the Arab American communities also might be leaning uh, toward Trump because of this issue. So Halid, we'll, we'll turn it over to you. I think you're on mute. Oh. Yeah, I think, uh, so if I can build off what everybody said and really hone in on maybe, maybe two salient sort of dimensions that I think are really um, important for the upcoming election that I think have been overlooked, which cut across two lines. I think number one, class, and second, education. So there's, 
I think there's a coastal sort of understanding of uh, the broader communities, Muslim and Arab, being aligned towards Biden, uh, largely because of the war on terror, largely because of the emergence of Islamophobia, and largely because of you know, Trump's sort of brazen rhetoric toward both communities. I want to be really delicate and not conflate Arab with Muslim American um, when speaking now, but also speaking further in the conversation. But what, what, what I've really um, identified, and I live in Dearborn, I live on the west side of Detroit, um, you know, interlocked fully in working class blue collar communities, is a real emerging um, support for Trump um, along lines of class and along lines of disaffection. Um, and when I say that, there's, this is an entrepreneurial class. This is a largely blue collar demographic of Arab and Muslim Americans in metropolitan Det Detroit who are driven largely by economic interests. And many of them, um, older, younger, uh, many of them millennials, truly believe that their economic interests are more aligned with the Trump administration um, than the Biden administration or the prospective Biden administration. So I, I'm, I'm not going to be surprised if a large number of Arab and Muslim Americans, and another dimension is also religion. We have large Christian um, Arab populations um, in the metro Detroit area, but also broadly the Coptic community, for instance, the Chaldean community, numbers show that they are overwhelmingly supportive of Trump. Um, so, you know, I what I see in polls and what I see a lot in a lot of the national discourses is a strong confidence that th these communities are aligned with Biden. But what I hear on the ground in these working class blue collar communities is a song that is dramatically different. Thank you for that, Hod. Um, and you had mentioned, you know, um, Islamophobia. And so I want to turn my attention to that a little bit. Um, and we really saw Trump use Islamophobia in his 2016 campaign. Um, Dahlia, I want to turn to you and ask, you know, what impact has the election of Trump had on the mainstreaming of Islamophobia, not only in the U.S., but also around the world? And, you know, where do you see this going if Trump wins? And what do you see changing in terms of anti-Muslim racism with a Biden administration? Um, if we look at the, um, the history of elections in the past decade, um, and, and especially after the election of President Obama in 2010, the summer of 2010, the hysteria around the so-called Ground Zero Mosque um, in the summer, right up to the run up to the election, was riding a wave of the rise of the Tea Party. And so we saw President Obama in his election and the kind of shift in the, in the racial dimension in the United States um, begin this mainstreaming of what used to be on the margins. And so in, in, in my research that you cited earlier, the, the run up to an election, you see a rise in anti-Muslim sentiment in ways we didn't see in, prior to the past decade. So 2010, it was hysteria around the Ground Zero Mosque. Of course, we know it was not a Ground Zero, or, nor was it a mosque. But as soon as the election is over, the hysteria dies down. 2012, we saw a very similar case with the um, anti-Sharia legislation, the attempt to pass it in almost two dozen states. It was never about getting the legislation passed, but it was about creating a level of hysteria around Islam and Muslims that allows elected officials on the Tea Party um, uh, ticket at that time to, to ride it right into office. And so the question is, why does it work? 
Um, why is anti-Muslim sentiment the most acceptable form of racism that exists today that used to be on the margins, but now is in the center? And with the election of Trump, 2015 being the most violent time for Muslims in American history, um, the, 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 the time of the Republican primary especially, and afterwards, you see that this led to the kind of culmination of anti-everyone sentiment being mainstreamed. If you take it on a global level, the rise of populism, um, right-wing nationalism in Central, Eastern, and, and Western Europe, um, xenophobic, anti-EU, hyper-nationalist um, um, sentiment is, is all over the world today. It's not just with Modi in India or Le Pen, or it, it's throughout Europe and, and really throughout the world. Um, and if you look at the the manifestos that we now have from these, for example, the Christchurch um, uh, massacre, these manifestos include language of a transnational network of 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 the rise, not just of the all right and neo Nazism, but the, the pr promoting of a race war. And so what Trump has done, especially since his election, is really feed the narrative of the race war and the coming race war and the hyper threat. Um, in security studies, we analyze this, that, you know, securitization of language is really creating the object. Right. And today the object is the threat. It began as 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 the Middle Eastern scary bogeyman um, moving into an Islamist bogeyman. And today it's everything that's not white. And so that led to the, 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 the rise of anti-Muslim sentiment opened the floodgates that allowed for the rise of neo-Nazism and the anti, um, the, the, the pro-white, the hyper-nationalist rhetoric that we're seeing today. And it's, it's really Trump and the narrative. I mean, he can't get away from it. He can't escape it. In the last debate, he actually gave a signal to the Proud Boys to stand down, you know, to be prepared. Um, he can't condemn white nationalists. And we're starting to see, I mean, I live in the most diverse state in the country in New Jersey, and we know today that, that white nationalist um, movements are growing in, in the state of New Jersey. And so the othering, you know, when you have this, this dynamic, um, you know, inter-ethnic place where white people are in the minority, the result has been the coming race war that needs to happen. And this is the rhetoric we saw, unfortunately, in the response to the Black Lives Matter protests, the mobilizing of a hyper-militarization of police, mobilizing of the army. I mean, the implications of this are not just in the United States, but they have ramifications throughout the world. And so when you see armies going into streets throughout the world, there's a signal that's happening. And unfortunately, it's the impending race war language that's creating um, re or redirecting the securitization language. I can just I jump in here yes. real quick. Yes, I just wanted to say that, obviously, I think everything that Dali said is 100% is correct. I would also want to draw attention to sort of the opposite of that, also the silver lining of the fact that the mainstreaming of the assault on the American Muslim community and Islamophobia rising to the level that it has, has also been an unprecedented embrace of the American Muslim community as part of the progressive opposition to Donald Trump and the fact that you've had the election of the first two American Muslim congresswomen into Congress. And so that clearly has created a, a countercurrent that is, is building a lot of power for, for the Arab American and the American Muslim community in, in opposition to this really actually terrifying shift towards right-wing populism that we're seeing everywhere. I, I, while I will very much agree with that, also the rhetoric against those two congresswomen coming from really the, the political yep. establishment 
is reflective of the still kind of suspect nature of these two congresswomen. Yes, absolutely. I think there are 78 Arab and Muslim um, candidates for office coming up in, in November. So it's a floodgate. It's a, it's a wonderful moment, but also the rhetoric of them being suspect citizens, um, you know, from Ilhan being from Somalia, someplace over there, go back to your country. And even the narrative being, you know, to Rashida as well, go back to your country when she's a native of Dearborn. Um, and so, yes, absolutely. But but the othering of them as as Muslim and, and Arab women in one case is 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 still part of the narrative that exists. If I if I can jump in, I think what's if we juxtapose what's happening in 2020 with the campaign versus 2016, we have to be frank and, and acknowledge that there's been a retrenchment, right? There's been a diminishment of focus on Islam and focus on um, otherization of Muslims. And I wonder why that is, right? I think a big reason why that is, is that there's been this disruption by the pandemic and the pandemic in many ways has supplanted uh, focus on Islam and focus on the war on terror as a sort of primary civilizational or societal threat in the United States. There was this really interesting article a couple of months ago, uh, I think it was in April, published in the Atlantic by Ben Rhodes. And he said that the 9-11 era is over. Uh, it was a very dangerous presumption in that article that this pandemic and this era of viruses would essentially end the war on terror, which I fundamentally disagree with. Um, I think what's happening now, obviously, is we see hate crimes and hate incidents against Asians, right? Chinese individuals going up as a consequence of the pandemic. What's really interesting, what I'd love to discuss with, with the panel is, how do we foresee Islamophobia being, in many respects, mutated? Is it going to continue concurrently with this fear of the pandemic? And what does the war on terror look uh, like moving ahead? Part of me feels like it's not gonna be the primary importance anymore and that Muslims might not be the principal uh, geopolitical threat we once, we, we've been for 20, uh, for 20 years, if not more. Um, but I think that's left, that's left to see. But I think what Omar said is very important. The fact that Islamophobia has become a central social justice slash racial justice issue that cannot be understated because we see foundations, universities, um, advocacy organizations making Islamophobia absolutely primal to what they do. And uh, I think that's been sort of a, um, <laughs> an ironically positive outcome uh, of the Trump administration. Thank you for that. That was, that was a very great discussion talking about, you know, what's happened when, in terms of mainstreaming of Islamophobia, but also the reaction to that and the growing movement against that. Um, so, one of the things along with, you know, mainstreaming Islamophobia that the Trump uh, with the election of Trump was also um, a massive shift in foreign policy. Uh, some experts have argued that American foreign policy under the current administration doesn't exist. Um, as we've seen the U.S. pull out of international treaties and agreements. So, Joe, I want to ask you, you know, how has foreign policy in particular when it comes to the Middle East changed under uh, Trump? And where do you see it going if Trump is reelected? I mean, it shifted in many in uh, in uh, in many ways. I mean, first, uh, I think Trump and uh, uh, what he did first was to undo whatever Obama did in the in the Middle East. So first, we have he attempted to first to build this uh, to return. I mean, to to the pre two thousand eleven, which is restoring the support for Arab uh, authoritarian regimes and make the support of Israel as a main priority driving U.S. policy. Uh, the second was his attempt to build this uh, Arab-Israeli alliance against Iran, 
which was key. The core of it obviously was the Palestinian-Israeli peace. It was not possible. Then they moved on with the normalization later. Um, this was a second shift because for Obama, uh, concept was we don't have to fight uh, Iran on behalf of Arab, of Arab countries. And he was more looking to diffuse tensions with Iran. So we have a, a whole uh, uh, going in a different uh, direction in that sense. Uh, and, and the third is uh, obviously, I mean, uh, the way the, the US images is abroad, the system has been more unpredictable. You have Trump withdrawing three times from Syria and never happened. Uh, so the uh, fragile of the system, who decides what's the institution of the system, how it functions, it's been very difficult to understand for, for people watching from abroad. Uh, uh, and uh, part of it is also the personalization, personalization of, of foreign policy uh, under Trump. Uh, there was no more interagency. I, I read a report yesterday that uh, Tillerson said the only interagency is launched with him at Mattis at the beginning of the administration. There was no basically clear institutional uh, policy decision-making. Uh, and it was mostly built on personal relation of Trump with Erdogan, Netanyahu, through his uh, uh, son-in-law, instead of going through rather uh, the traditional uh, channel. Um, so, um, so the US wasn't representing anymore this democratic ideals. When you have Trump bashing media, uh, praising uh, Kim Jong-un or all this also gave an impression that if the U.S. can function within these terms, why, you know, we can basically give us green light to do the same at, at home. So there's this big uh, ideal uh, gap that Trump has, uh, has uh, gave this green light for many authoritarian regimes. Uh, and the other aspect is also the transactional aspect of foreign policy, that he only cared about deals that the way to get to him is through to get a deal somehow. And, and basically this changed how all the Arab and also Muslim uh, countries were interested in, in getting his ear, uh, including Turkey and others, is to, to go down this route. Uh, so I think he didn't change a lot on, on the strategy-wise, uh, besides the Iran aspect and the Israel aspect. Uh, but he couldn't uh, shift a lot of things, uh, whether in Syria or, or Iraq or uh, on other points. We still have the same limitation for U.S. foreign policy there because there's lack of intention to, to send troops or to invest money. And this is not going to change with Trump or Biden. Uh, so Biden will have to deal with this legacy if he wins. He has to deal with this ceiling on Iran. That a deal of, with Iran is not possible anymore without Trump. Uh, parameters. Also, the uh, embassy shift to, 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 uh, to, uh, to, to Jerusalem. Also, the, uh, the Syria is, is going to give him a more complicated... Uh, so there are a lot of details to go in, but in, in general, I think, I wouldn't expect a big shift when Biden comes to power. We won't have like a switch and suddenly everything going to be changed. I think it's more nuanced and slow uh, shift of US foreign policy. Yeah. Omar, I want to bring you into this since we're talking about the, the Middle East and, you know, Joe talked about the normalization between the UAE um, and Israel. I want to know, you know, what is the difference between Biden and Trump when it comes to policies concerning Palestine? Joe ha has said, you know, the normalization deal that's been in place, um, Biden's 
kind of going to have to roll along with that. What do you see happening in terms with the rights of Palestinians? You know, are, will we see the U.S. embassy move move back out of Jerusalem? What, what uh, you know, just expanding more on that. So just to give this a little bit more context as well, I think one thing that Joe said that, that is worth emphasizing is that, or actually you said it in, in, in setting up his, the first question, is about the fact that Donald Trump does not have a foreign policy. I think that is more true of him than of any other president. Obviously, for every president, domestic considerations are a factor when they're doing foreign policy is how things reflect on them. But in the case of Donald Trump, that is literally exclusively what he's focused on. It's all about what plays with his domestic base. And that's the primary driver is how it affects his reelection uh, prospects without any genuine care or regard for what's happening on the foreign front. Um, in the case of policy on Palestine and Israel broadly, I, I think also a bit of context of pre-Trump is important here in the sense that U.S. policy has always been deeply problematic on that front. Um, the U.S. has always said the right things. It said no to occupation. It said no to Israeli settlements in the Palestinian territories. But whenever it came to actions, U.S. actions were consistently moving in the opposite direction. The U.S. always offered unconditional military aid to Israel, which made the occupation possible and facilitated the building of settlements and everything else. And when it comes to diplomatic support, the U.S. also used its veto well over 40 times at the U.N., to block efforts of accountability for Israel. So in effect, US policy was enablement of the very things that the US claimed it opposed. Um, with Donald Trump, what, what, the, what US policy needed was a correction in terms of policy so that it meets its rhetoric. And with Donald Trump, you had the correction in the opposite direction, where finally what was US enablement of Israeli denial of freedom for Palestinians before Trump became a full partnership in the war on Palestinian existence. You know, when you hand the policy over to Jared Kushner and David Friedman, in the case of David Friedman, somebody who's really to the right of Netanyahu when it comes to the Palestinians, a, a full endorsement of Israeli annexation and takeover of all Palestinian territories. Uh, we saw the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, cutting of funding to UNRWA, moving the consulate, uh, closing the consulate that serves Palestinians in East Jerusalem, shutting down the Palestinian mission in Washington. I mean, this is really... I don't think Netanyahu ever imagined in his wildest dreams that the U.S. would be leading on these kinds of efforts. And that's what we have really seen. And I think what, we'll, what we would probably see with the Biden administration is simply an undoing of the more extreme policies that Donald Trump has implemented. Um, he's already signaled that he's going to be restoring funding to UNRWA and reopening uh, the consulate and reopening the mission in Washington. The issue of Jerusalem, I think, will be the one that he probably won't budge on. It feels, given the fact that there has been a bipartisan consensus for a very long time, you know, Trump's awful decision to illegally recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital has been made possible by both parties who have been engaging in this rhetoric for a very, very long time. Democrats were in favor of it, and they're not in a position right now to object to it after it's already happened. They won't be reversing course on it, unfortunately. Um, but the problem with Biden returning us to a pre-Trump framework, which is already problematic, is that it will get us stuck once more in a futile peace process where Israel is pretending to be talking about peace while actively taking whatever lands it wants on the ground. And there will be an expectation of Palestinian gratitude because Biden will have, will have undone some of the worst policies that Trump did, that there's going to be an expectation that why aren't Palestinians more thankful? And the reason, unfortunately, which is going to require some explaining, is that pre-Trump policy is what got us Trump. Pre-Trump policy mm -hmm is already anti-Palestinian and is in desperate need of a correction. And in terms of these um, normalization deals, really the driving force 
from Donald Trump's perspective, and for Netanyahu is again, purely electoral, Donald Trump's policy, foreign policy has been an utter failure on every front, and he's desperate to tout something as an achievement. And so this deal between governments in the Middle East and Israel that are already in existence under the table, simply coming to the surface and then portraying them as though they're historic peace deals between enemies. I mean, it's, it's total nonsense, but it serves the narrative that Trump has a success in foreign policy. And unfortunately, you can see that even Joe Biden is praising these deals as though they are historic achievements. And then from the perspective of some of these Arab governments, they're invested in Trump's reelection precisely for the reason that I think Joe pointed out, which is they want more hawkishness towards Iran and they were disappointed. I mean, that's the common cause ultimately between some of these governments in Israel is they were disappointed with the fact that Obama was genuinely interested in diffusing tensions with Iran and simply making sure that Iran doesn't get nuclear weapons, you know, the mantra that, that uh, Israel has, has been claiming that this was all about. And then when Obama prevents Iran from, from acquiring nuclear weapons, it turns out that wasn't the issue at all. They want to contain Iran's influence in the region more broadly, and that's why they're willing to do this favor for Donald Trump's re-election by also playing up the significance of these normalization deals. And you have a situation right now that is so grotesque that you have all these historical deals being signed between the UAE and Israel where Emiratis can now visit Israel without a visa when Americans can't visit Israel without a visa and when Palestinians who are living there cannot access Jerusalem or many areas there without jumping through a billion hoops uh, that Israel sets up for them and all kinds of obstacles. So it is a charade and it is a charade aimed at helping Donald Trump's re-election because that serves many people's interests there. So just going off of, you know, you talked about Iran. Joe, um, do you think that under a Biden administration, they're going to see, you know, um, talks of going the U.S. signing back on to the Iran nuclear deal? How do you see that happening? And how do you see the shift in the, um, you know, geopolitical alliances in the Middle East right now? How will the Biden administration, where will they fall within that? It's going to be difficult uh, for him. Uh, I think technically they, they will sign in back, but I think they will try to, to negotiate an addendum, which is the path Trump would have been on by the advice of the Europeans early on, is to add uh, basically addendum basically on the uh, ballistic missile and on the on the on the some of the regional role. Uh, and he will have more Europeans on board to, to tackle this issue. Uh, I think he will seek more to diffuse tensions in Iraq and Lebanon with, with, with Iran. Uh, there's sort of concern the U.S. military on this issue. Uh, but I cannot see him undoing uh, sanctions very quickly because the Congress will, will resist first because there's already sanctions now in place. And if Biden is soft on, on, on this issue, he will face pressure in Congress. Uh, so uh, it will be de very delicate for him. Uh, I think the main issue is to restore uh, the opening line that was between Kerry and Zarif, uh, is to restore to the next Secretary of State if Biden wins, because this led to a lot of miscalculation in the past years of potential confrontation. You need to have with your enemy a clear uh, direct line. If something happens, you pick up the phone and you, and you deal with it. So I think part of the uh, new uh, potential moves is to have this back, uh, return to the deal, but put the precondition of having an addendum, have the Europeans on board, and try to convince Congress that those are enough basically to, to move in this direction, maybe to have partial lift of some sanctions to bring them to the table. Uh, obviously, uh, Trump, I think if he gets reelected, he might go down this road. Uh, once he's not maybe... Uh, 
surrounded by most of the right-wing groups. If Pompeo stays in power, it will be a big debate. But if he takes, I think if he's reelected, it's going to go down this road. And Iranians have no choice but to make a deal. I think that the economic situation is really bad at this point. They need a way out. And they need to a face-saving way out. It means not like under pressure. So, uh, And uh, they're already channeled through the Omanis. Uh, through uh, many other regional countries, through Swiss, obviously, those can be also uh, activated again. So there's lot, the, the parameters of the deal is very clear, but the issue is how to get both sides on the table. Mm-hmm. And if there's willingness, there's no domestic restriction on, on them to do so. Uh, but I think it's, it's uh, not sustainable, I think, uh, to continue down on this path without having confrontation. If the Iranian regime has no more choice, I think they will get more uh, aggressive moving forward. Mm-hmm. And now they are just waiting for the election, like many in the region. And, uh, but again, I don't expect a big shift if Biden comes, but there will be a gradual transformation. Khalid, you had um, mentioned you know, about the Ben Rhodes article about the war on terror. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, what does a Biden foreign policy look like in terms of the war on terror? Um, will it be a continuation of Obama era policies where we saw an upsurge of drone strikes and, you know, quote unquote, soft counterterrorism when it comes to domestic issues such as, you know, the institution of CVE? Um, where do you see that headed with the Biden administration? Yeah, my, my, my assumption is with the Biden administration, we're going to see a restoration of, you know, Obama-like strategy. He was his vice president. He's probably going to bring in a lot of the intelligentsia who ran uh, the security programming um, for Obama. I think what Omar said is is critically important because what we had under the Obama, if you were to sort of um, synopsize the Obama war on terror strategy into a thesis, it is rhetorical dissonance with, uh, with, with programs, with nefarious programming, right? So what Obama said was laudatory, uh, was perceived as being progressive, um, but the programming was destructive. I mean, you mentioned the droning in Yemen, uh, droning in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and so on and so forth, and the maintenance of war, right? The maintenance of war in Iraq, uh, which was destructive on many levels. So on the foreign po- policy level, we're going to see a restoration of reconciliation, harmony, living in harmony with the Muslim world, that kind of language being juxtaposed with really destructive um, programming that is latent and not as conspicuous. On the domestic level, we'll see a restoration of counter-radicalization policing. Um, And what is dangerous is based on that laudatory rhetoric that Obama used that Biden will revisit um, is Muslims will be pulled in to be more complicit in part of the architecture of counter-radicalization policing like we saw under Obama. It's easy under Trump because of the explicit rhetoric and the alignment of destructive rhetoric with destructive programming. However, Obama's language and Biden's language, perhaps not as maybe not as, um, you know, I, I, I guess is attractive, but it has the effect of seducing Muslims in to becoming part of the system and becoming facilitators in the surveillance of Muslim American communities, specifically vulnerable Muslim American communities, right? And it's important to intersect class and race here when we think about counter radicalization. The communities that have been hardest hit are uh, the Somali community in Minneapolis, for instance, which occupy this intersection of poverty, blackness, uh, and Muslim identity. Places like Detroit, where I live, where we have large working class and indigent Muslim communities, places like New York, and so on and so forth. 
So the class dimension is of absolute importance when we talk about the Biden administration, because you have a sort of middle and gentry class of, intel of the intelligentsia who are happy to be the functionaries for counter-radicalization programming that are you know, effectively bludgeoning the poorest elements of the broader Muslim Arab American communities. If I can very quickly, um, since we are not differing a lot, I just want to have the, the smallest agreement with, with Khalid on this. Uh, I think uh, um, there's a big shift away from the war on terror. There's obvious tools now for it, which is when needed, the drones and some local support from indigenous groups and some, when needed, some uh, elite uh, U.S. forces. I think what will Biden will do is what Trump basically didn't do which is the advice of the Pentagon to shift the resources to deal with China and Russia. And he will shift away a little bit from the Middle East and be less on those conflicts that are not going anywhere and let them manage through their, their own life. I think with Biden, you're going to see the shift more that the resources, military and financial, will be shifting more to, to emerging powers who are more, from a national strategy, it's more a priority at this point. And, by, and Trump delayed this uh, because he insisted on going through Iran confrontation. He delayed this shift. And I think, Dahlia, you wanted to say something as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to disagree a little bit on the foreign policy um, stuff, because if you look at I, I, there's going to be a big difference between Biden and, and um, Trump on foreign policy. Historically, when we look at the two pillars of stability in the Middle East, they've been Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And today, Saudi Arabia and Egypt are not pillars of stability, um, but they've become the two countries that um, Trump has completely uh, embraced. We know, you know, if, if the reporting is true from two weeks ago, that the Egyptian government understands. CC gave him $10 million right before his um, re-election, but right before his election. And he was the first um, to be called to congratulate my favorite dictator. This complete embrace of dictators by Trump, I don't think will continue under a Biden administration or the covering for what um, is happening in Saudi Arabia today and the influence of Saudi Arabia here in the, in, in the West. Um, I, I don't think that there's going to be this carte blanche embrace of dictators in the Middle East, especially post-Arab Spring, that there has been under the Trump administration. Now, when the two pillars of stability or so-called stability in the Middle East have been Egypt and Saudi Arabia, who are declining in their in their relative power, but see that the, the one that is rising and is a threat is Iran, it becomes a really interesting intersection of interest for the Trump administration, Egypt and Saudi Arabia, and today the UAE to continue the rhetoric against Iran. And I don't think a Biden administration is going to buy into that narrative that Iran is the existential threat um, to the region. Um, there probably will not be a direct confrontation with Iran. And we're going to go back to kind of the soft and, and uh, soft diplomacy. So I, I think foreign policy under Trump is undefined, but it's very transactional, as Joe said at the outset, right? It's what is in his best interest. And we've seen that reflected in his relations with, with Egypt, Saudi Arabia, um, and others in the region, uh, primarily Israel. I think a Biden administration is going to push back on that. We've seen statements in the past couple of weeks, but really throughout the past two years from members of Congress and also from, from Vice President Biden against the level of repression happening in, in some of these um, post-Arab Spring dictatorships. And so I think there might be a shift. When we, um, in the 2000s, under even President Bush, would talk about the Middle East, there was a push for pluralism and inclusion and minority rights. 
Um, today, when we talk about the Middle East, it's stop killing your people, right? Stop, stop putting people in prisons. And so the narrative on terms of what the what brings stability to the Middle East, I think has shifted. And there is a recognition that especially post-Arab Spring, if there isn't the inclusion of civil society people, voices, that the region could be teetering. And we're seeing that reflected um, in increased repression. Places like Egypt and Saudi Arabia are increasing repression because the populations are increasingly dissatisfied. And I think a Biden administration will recognize that there has to be a shift in how they treat those two so-called pillars of stability and shift away from Iran as the existential threat. This was reflected just last night when the security apparatus FBI came out and told the public that the threat on the elections is coming from Iran, right? And possibly then, um, possibly then uh, Russia. Iran is still the, um, the, the kind of folly in the room with which you can blame and also gain sympathy from the American population. Otherwise, it would not have been done last night. I mean, if you think about the way we talk about Iran, you know, when the pandemic started, it was Iran who was hit right after Asia the most. And yet today, we don't talk about the Iranian population as being victims of coronavirus, where they actually suffered much more than Italy did. And we are very comfortable with the othering narrative of the Iranian population, stripping them of, of a level of humanity. So I still think the Islamophobic narrative that started um, in the post 9-11 world is still going to be the, the carriage that carries a lot of foreign policy agenda setting. But I do think that there will be a fundamental shift under a Biden administration that doesn't embrace complete dictatorship the way Trump has. Omar, I'd like to... Um direct my next question at you. Another thing we've seen with the, this uh, administration um, and in American society, we've seen a, a shift in conversation about free speech. Free speech has risen as a contentious issue, and there's been growing conversation about how free speech is being stifled. Um, and this is particularly coming from right wing. Um, and they're talking about the dangers of a cancel culture. And what's interesting is that many who claim to defend free speech are completely silent or even supportive uh, when it comes to campaigns attempting to silence the voice of the Palestinian activists. You know, what impact do you think this national conversation on free speech has had on the movement for the rights of Palestinians and campaigns such as BDS? No, I think you're absolutely spot on um, as far as the description of, of the complaints about free speech uh, that are coming primarily from the right they primarily deal with instances of deplatforming and attempts to cancel people who have shared opinions that are unpopular or problematic in, in some ways. And frankly, I think within that range, there are cases that are absolutely defensible. There are people who are hate mongers who should not be using the country's most prestigious platforms to spread racism and, and xenophobia and all kinds of stuff. And there are also instances where that stuff has gone too far, where over a minor joke or over an off comment that people would demand people's heads and, and demand they be canceled, that can be over the top. But that entire range of debate excludes the most significant threat to free speech. The only instance in which the government is acting against free speech is in the instance of people speaking up in defense of Palestinian rights. There is an Effort, there was an effort in Congress to expand the definition of anti-Semitism. There was something being passed, uh, attempt, an attempt to pass something called the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act, which basically says that certain forms of criticism of Israel are anti-Semitic. And it was extremely vague about what it means to demonize Israel. It obviously was a recipe to chill free speech around Israel. 
Um, and thankfully, that was defeated in Congress. There was enough pressure built up against it. A lot of the biggest, you know, uh, free speech and civil rights organizations, including the ACLU, spoke against it. And when that was thankfully defeated, Trump turned around and passed it anyway as an executive order. So he's using um, basically the heavy hand of his administration to force these kinds of definitions on society. Uh, just recently, actually, I think it was yesterday, uh, it was uh, announced that Trump is considering labeling major human rights organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch uh, as anti-Semitic organizations, precisely because they are critical of Israel's violations of Palestinian rights. And that is obviously a very, very dangerous ground when it comes to, to free speech. And it's a, it's a major threat. And it's frankly, an exposure of the hypocrisy of many of the people who claim to be concerned about free speech when it turns out what they're really they're stifled and they can't speak their minds about the issues that they care about, but it's not really a genuine care for free speech, given the fact that they've been silent on this really incredible massive threat. And that's also true of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement targeting Israel, where Donald Trump's and the Republican mindset on this is to pass laws to make it punishable to boycott Israel so that you can be denied um, job opportunities with the, with the state, you know, denied contracts. And again, this is a very significant free speech battle that is ongoing and raging and requires a lot more attention than it's getting. Um, in the case of a Biden administration, there would be a significant improvement, but not an entirely unproblematic one. Uh, obviously, Biden would not be pursuing the same heavy-handed efforts to silence um, dissent on U.S. policy on Israel-Palestine using the heavy hand of the state. However, at the same time, Biden's approach, and that is of a lot of establishment Democrats, is to insinuate that BDS is anti-Semitic and that people should stay away from it. So while they're not making it punishable, they're creating a cloud of suspicion around the boycott movement so that people are afraid to engage with it. And that obviously creates a, a, a chilling effect that impacts people's ability to speak freely on this. Uh, but that is a fight that is a little bit, you know, that ends up being a battle of ideas in a way that Trump's heavy-handed approach mm -hmm. of, the, of, of suppressing speech by force um, is, Holly, is extremely uh, dangerous. Thank you for that. And Holly, I want to bring you into this as well, because Trump also loves to talk about free speech, and, um, but he recently attacked diversity training and critical race theory, calling mm -hmm. it un-American. So what impact do you think this will have on American society and, and the movement for racial justice? So I'm a critical race theorist and in my scholarship is firmly within the canon of critical race theory and I, not surprising, right? So I think what Omar says, if I can build, up, build on it a bit is there, there's a really stark hypocrisy coming from the right, right? And, and the right isn't monolithic and I'm not trying to essentialize the right as being this homogenous sort of monster but on one hand, um, certain forms of free speech and academic uh, freedom are to be policed closely uh, because critical race theory, like Muslim identity at large, is tethered to suspicion, subversion, and threats to the state. So on one hand, they want to police that language because of its political character. But then again, the right, and specifically, you know, really uh, zealous elements on the right, uh, you know, will champion and raise the flag of free speech when they want to critique um, Black people, when they want to condemn the Black Lives Matter movement, when they engage in racist sort of rhetoric against Muslims and uh, Mexicans and immigrants and so on and so forth. So th there's this really dangerous, but I think really vapid at the end of the day, because it's so it's so clear to see how hypocritical it is of selective sort of championing um, of free speech when it suits your political interests. Um, and then obviously uh, a policing of free speech when it's against your political interests. 
And I'll be honest, I think the left does this too at times, right? I think the left is quick to police the language of um, certain elements that they disagree with under the banner of uh, we need to censor specific kinds of free speech. We need to sort of deplatform individuals. So there needs to be a real sort of intellectual disciplining, you know, beyond sort of political ideology to say that free speech, which is obviously enshrined in the First Amendment, right? It's one of the foundational liberties uh, in this country that's extended to everybody, um, needs to be one of these sort of concerns um, that is viewed from beyond the political spectrum and is actually best viewed beyond the political spectrum. Because if we are, whether on the left, the right, the center, wherever you sort of exist on the political spectrum, if you ever engage in um, the, the attempt or the endeavor of policing somebody's political speech, then you expose yourself of being policed if somebody perceives your activity and your speech to be dangerous. And that's what we see with the Trump administration. Um, and it, it's had really, I can tell you as a, as a law professor um, within legal institutions, it's had a really frightening impact on individuals who do critical race theory, especially individuals who are pre-tenured uh, because they're, it's chilling the kind of scholarship they engage in chilling the kind of public facing work they do. So there, there's real sort of consequences when the most powerful person in the country, if not the world, is vilifying an entire academic movement as being subversive um, and unpatriotic. And Dahlia, um, I wanted to ask you this with, with Trump and you talked about um, white nationalism and you know how white nationalism has really been platformed with, with his campaign and with his presidency. When um, you know November third comes and say Trump doesn't win, what do you think will happen with that massive platforming of white nationalists who he, like you said, with the Proud Boys, he said stand back and stand by. You know what are we looking at after November third if Trump loses? What is going to happen with this massive white nationalist movement that we've seen? So I know some of the scholars, especially out of University of Chicago, have been warning about this um, since the since the election of Trump, that on the next election, if he loses, there will be um, a race war, basically, because of the language that's been used, because of the interconnectedness of, of this. Um, and we have started to hear, um, you know, the in the past year, the undermining of democracy and elections and the validity of the coming election. And, and again, echoed again last night. Um, and so if the, or the election monitoring, you know, telling um, individuals to go and not just monitor, but almost intimidate voters. And so this could be a moment where um, I know some on the more critical, fearful are, are worried about a civil war, but in terms of the sociocultural effects of what's happening today, this might not be something we can overcome for quite some time. Um, the social division, but also the, the arming, um, the, the increased militias. You know, before the election of, of President Obama, there were eight militias in the United States. Today, there's over 30. Um, and we are talking about heavily armed militias. You know, how is this allowed to continue? We know that the FBI has said the number one threat to the United States is domestic terrorism, is hyper white nationalism. And it's not been treated as such. You know, even um, if we recall last, uh, just around this time last year, there was a hearing on the rise of white nationalism. And one of the individuals um, who was testifying in the hearing was Dr. Salha, who lost his daughters in the, um, in, in North Carolina, in that, you know, uh, our three winners, the, the three young people who were shot to death in, in, in South Carolina, sorry. 
And um, so the father of two victims is testifying on how white nationalism has taken his children. And after giving his statement, his, the questions coming to him were, did you teach your daughters to hate? Does your religion teach hate? It was 45 minutes of questioning of Dr. Salha about his religion and his activities at the mosque before a single question was given was actually asked about white nationalism. And so the way with which this has been treated um, by, the, by, by the police, by the FBI, even by Congress is not, has, has created a culture and an environment where this is allowed to exist. And even in the hearing on the rise of white nationalism and the rise of the alt-right, um, Dr. Salha was, it was all about being Muslim, right? It was not about what took his daughter, two daughters' lives. And so we could be coming at a critical juncture where the, the race war um, that's been stoked for the past four years, as, as some of the research coming out of University of Chicago is saying, will, will, will turn violent. Um, the, the manifestos that have come out of um, some of the, the, the mass shootings are really stoking history of a race war. And the way with which this moves, not just from the United States to Eastern Europe, but from Western Europe to Eastern Europe and back to the United States, the way, the, 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 the fact that this has not been treated as a transnational terror movement, again, is reflective of policy that's not in keeping up with what's going on and the continued concentration on suspect communities, Arab and Muslim communities in the United States, and not on this community as in their own language and, and data says this is the threat and not watching this movement from Eastern, Western Europe back to the United States is, is really telling that the security apparatus here in the United States, FBI, um, is not um, is not looking at this as critically as it should. And we could come at a moment where them bypassing it and continuing to concentrate on Arab and Muslim communities will lead into the, the kind of breakdown of civil society that we've been talking about in a lot of the literature analyzing the past four years. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Joe, I have one last question before we jump into the Q&A. Um, wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, what policy will look like with another Trump administration or a Biden administration, in particular when it comes to Syria, with the ongoing war in, in, in the country. Um, what do you see in terms of how Biden's administration will approach it? And where do you see the Trump administration going with that? Uh, when it comes to Syria, there's a lot of limitations for U.S. foreign policy. There's not there's not much room for creativity with either Biden or uh, Trump because there are other actors who are in some areas more effective. And uh, uh, obviously, uh, whether Biden or Trump, they will continue to have presence in northeast Syria and this partnership with the Kurds. Obviously, with Biden, it's going to be more re, uh, reinforced. Uh, and then uh, I think the issue with Trump that he couldn't have a real conversation with Russia because of the investigation in the U.S. election 2016. So you get, you will, we will see, I think, more Biden uh, administration trying to to move the uh, conflict resolution process more in a uh, more active way than uh, the current administration was. But I think the biggest shift will be the relation with the main leaders. Uh, Biden's relation with Erdogan gonna be completely different from 
the current one. He has an open line now with Erdogan. Uh, Biden will be more uh, taking distance, uh, focusing on the relation with Kurds. So it's got, we're going to have little some clashes maybe between the Trump administration and the Erdogan government. It's not going to go all the way to to have no uh, enmity, but there are going to be more tensions, especially from Congress on sanction and other uh, other aspects. And also the relation with Russia can be uh, different. So. The big, the big question is what will Biden do on Iran on other issues, and this will will have impact also on uh, things moving uh, how things will moving in Syria. But one last point to make is Trump gave a basically a dynamite for uh, Biden moving forward. This deal that was in northeast Syria was having Russian patrols, Turkish patrols, and U.S. patrols on the same land. This is just setting the scene for a confrontation. And any Trump or when Biden comes, he will be, his hands will be forced by this, that they cannot challenge uh, uh, Russia and Turkey without having uh, bullied some U.S. troops on the ground by, by regular patrols. So this is going to be a, uh, also a big question uh, for, for, for Biden. But uh, the, the big question Biden should answer or Trump is what the U.S. endgame in Syria. At this point, we still don't know whether we have the section on the regime and now on Russia is not leading to a conflict resolution uh, imposed by the U.S. So I think they should have clear understanding as what the U.S. policy in Syria in five years and six years, who are their allies on the ground. And, and uh, Trump didn't take the time to focus on this because he was busy in other areas. Uh, uh, so I think Biden will have to answer those questions. Thank you for that. We'll open up um, Q&A now, and we have one um, for Omar. Um, some have said that uh, Biden pre presidency would be bad news for Netanyahu and the Israeli right, but others have also written that it could actually only strengthen him because it would help him return to his role as Israel's champion against U.S. bullies. What do you think? So I think that it is true that Donald Trump is an exceptional gift to the far right um, in Israel. There's no question about that. But at the same time, I know that Joe Biden has touted the fact that he is a close ally of Netanyahu, that he likes him on a personal level, that there's this whole friendship thing. So that aspect of it, I think that there is now a sense in the US that Netanyahu, there's an acceptance, there's broad acceptance of the fact that Netanyahu is a racist, that his policies are far right, that he's closely allied with Trump. And it would be interesting to see whether Biden would attempt to rehabilitate Netanyahu to some extent in American public discourse and whether part of his mission, you know, one of the ways that Biden has been critical of, of Trump in the past uh, about this, as far as this is concerned, is saying that Donald Trump is so extreme on this that he's turned policy on Israel partisan. And one of the things that Biden wants to do is to restore, bi restore bipartisan support for Israel. And at a time when a lot of other progressive um, presidential candidates during the primaries like Elizabeth Warren and like Bernie Sanders were talking about conditioning military aid to Israel on Israel behaving better. Biden came out swinging, insisting that there will never be conditioning of aid to Israel under his watch and that that's an outrageous suggestion. So in some ways, there's no question that Biden would be less bad for the Palestinians, but mm -hmm. that is very much a matter of degree that I think going as far as to say that Netanyahu, you know, while he would be constrained by the election of Joe Biden, I don't think that he has too much to be worried about because ultimately 
Biden will simply be restoring um, a relationship with Israel that emphasizes the significance of that relationship. It's primacy, uh, you know, trying to eliminate any daylight, trying to keep any criticism of Israel quiet. And in that sense, it's a small blow to Netanyahu, but not big enough for us to say that Netanyahu will be devastated by it. Um, thank you for that. Dahlia, we have a question that I think we touched on a little bit, but I think um, we can address it a bit more. After 20, you know, the 2016 elections, right after Trump won, we did see an uptick in hate crimes against uh, Muslims, against marginalized minority communities within the U.S., um, we have a question that's asking, do you think there will be more violence against Arab communities in the U.S. by Trump voters or paramilitary groups? Um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? So the, the uptick in violence against um, Muslims, um, especially young Muslims, has, has continued to increase after 2016. Um, and, and some of it is, uh, you know, against the kind of symbols of Islam and Muslims, like women who veil and, and mosques and, and Sirdar men, men, men who are Sikhs who are turbans. Those have been the three physical um, symbols of attack as an aim to dehumanize Islam and Muslims. But the, the other kind of current that we've started to see since 2016 is, is in-school bullying. So one in four Muslim students um, according to ISPU, has been bullied in school. And of those one in four, one in three was bullied by their teacher. And so we we're starting to see the kind of social um, identity, the, the kind of long-term effects of 2016 already as a strong current in society. And so the social cultural effects are, you know, we usually talk about hate crimes um, as, as, as moments and they flee, but we're starting to see the kind of entrenched, ingrained um, um, violence. And though, so that's why you're starting to see that second and third generation Arab American Muslims and second, third generation Latino Americans feel that they belong less than their parents did. And so this kind of generational um, uh, a division that we're seeing in, in questions of identity and belonging are quite telling. In 2016, um, I think post-election, there, there might be certain policies that will be enacted that will, that will further this. So for example, when, when we look at um, the Trump administration's treatment of uh, Muslims in, Muslim institutions in the United States, there was a push twice at the start of his administration to designate the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization. And this was a push that came from abroad, from the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. And the chilling effect that would have happened would it was would attempt to paralyze organizations like the Council on Islamic Relations, ISNA, this is this, um, this uh, the, the kind of umbrella organizations of Muslims in the United States, that um, anyone, because um, you can call anyone a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, that that chilling effect would kind of freeze any community activity and create a level of fear of even going to your mosque. And so what that, if, if that kind of language that was attempted at the beginning of his administration returns post-election, we might start to see the kind of chilling effect on community activity um, because of fear that is coming from, from, from new policies enacted. So while there, there may or not be the fear of, 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 of paramilitary, um, I, I think the sociocultural effects and coming impending possible policies that target minority communities um, might be more of the long-term effects that we see, the sociocultural effects we see post-2016, um, post-2020. Thank you. Um, Joe, this is, I'm going to direct this at you, but also if any of the other panelists would like to answer this question. 
Um, how do you think the U.S. presidential election will influence the political situation right now in Lebanon? Definitely, it will have uh, definitely will have an influence. Uh, it will be part of the larger question of uh, uh, of Iran. Uh, how the U.S. going to proceed with Iran? This will be the first significant aspect. Uh, otherwise, uh, I don't see a big uh, big shift. Lebanon, there's lots of constraints on U.S. policy in Lebanon, as it is as constraints on Lebanon, uh, on Iran. I mean, in Lebanon. So the question is. Will the pressure continue the sanctions to move forward with the uh, Lebanon-Israel talks uh, or not? Um, um, the continued support for the allies in Lebanon, U.S. allies, this also I doubt it will change. Uh, so I don't see the big change with, when it comes to U.S. policy in Lebanon, but the, the change going to be is how Biden or Trump will deal with Iran. And this will have uh, immediate impact uh, uh, on Lebanon. Thank you for that. Um, we have another question here. Um, this is uh, Dahlia or Omar, um, either of you or both of you want to answer to this one. Um, where do you think the work needs to be done when it comes to you know, mobilizing Arab and Muslim communities when it comes to being um, politically aware and involved within politics, within U.S. politics. Dali, feel free to go first. Oh, Omar, this is your area of expertise. Um, I, I, I think just in, in general, um, lots of, uh, or a segment of the community, both Arab and Muslim, believe that their votes don't matter. Um, and the, the breaking of that narrative has to be, um, if your vote didn't matter, there wouldn't be such an attempt to ensure that you believe that your vote doesn't matter. Um, you know, when we talk about, for example, Islamophobia, it's, it's, it's usually defined as like the hysteria around Islam and Muslims, but there's actually a political objective. And the objective is the marginalization of Muslims from civic and political life, so that we believe that we don't belong. And so that political objective is what needs to be recognized and turned on its head. And so the kind of apathetic, my vote doesn't matter, it's the lesser of two evils, it's, 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 that has to shift away from, if your vote didn't matter, there wouldn't be such a concerted effort to make sure that you believe that your vote doesn't matter. And so it's that kind of um, community engagement awareness that I think needs to continue. It's been happening and it needs to continue, but, but this is Almer's area of expertise. No, honestly, I think that's spot on. I mean, the only thing I would add is also the importance of organizing and being part of an organized effort. At the end of the day, you know, we see how distressing the news can be about U.S. foreign policy, about domestic policy, about public discourse in America. And it's very easy to simply tweet your anger and then just show up on election day and, and cast a ballot. Um, but I think it would be much more effective to organize with people who are concerned about the same issues that you're concerned about. It's important to run for public office, to run for delegate, um, to essentially make sure that you're part of an organized effort that pushes candidates and, and members of Congress on the issues that you actually care about. Building those relationships with members of Congress is incredibly important. If you only show up to your member of Congress in a moment of crisis, and they don't know who you are, and they have no relationship with you, and they don't know what your community's concerns are, they're a lot less likely to be moved in that one instance 
than if you actually have a longstanding relationship where you're constantly providing uh, your elected representatives with information about the issues and they see you as an expert on that particular issue and they start coming to you for guidance on what they should be doing about certain issues that are of concern to our community. So the more that we are plugged in, in organized efforts to influence public policy, uh, the more effective we can be. And you don't have to start from scratch. There are plenty of organizations that are doing this kind of work. They simply need to just look them up and, and plug in. Obviously, as far as Arab American political empowerment specifically, there is the Arab American Institute as one organization that is leading some of the work on this. And I'm sure there's countless organizations that you can plug in. And also making sure that we're engaged on a local level as well. It's not just about showing up once every four years to vote for president, but there's a lot happening in your local communities that we should be more invested in and building those relationships and starting from the ground up. Just going off of that, you know, you're mentioning organizations and you mentioned the Arab American Institute. Um, we've also seen now post, uh, you know, post 2016 with the election of Trump, we saw, like you said earlier on, a, a huge progressive movement a huge shift in, in, a, in a pushback to those policies. And we've seen a proliferation of small groups, um, you know, uh, instead of the older, larger umbrella groups. Do you think it's it's harmful or it's, it's a, a good thing to have numerous smaller groups focusing on these issues? Not harmful at all. I think it's absolutely great. And especially that a lot of these sort of younger upcoming generation that is just beginning to be politically engaged is focused primarily on intersectional organizing and plugging into other uh, progressive causes, working with the Black Lives Matter movement, all of these things are incredibly positive. And I think that it's important to appreciate the Arab American and American Muslim communities for the diversity uh, that they exhibit. And ultimately, these things are complementary, even when there is huge disagreements on, on messaging, even when there's huge, you know, there are major strategic disagreements, there are big fights about the, you know, the efforts of organizations like Engage and, and so many others. And frankly, I think obviously I have my opinions and, and a lot of these things, but I think in the broad scheme of things, having that tension within the community is ultimately a good thing. We need people who are well-connected on the establishment front to make sure that our voice can reach the circles of power where it needs to be heard. And at the same time, you need a grassroots base that holds these organizations accountable and make sure that they don't stray too far in pursuit of having their voice heard to the point to where they are no longer reflecting the genuine grassroots. So I think that that tension and the presence of, of a diversity of voices and approaches in the communities is, is absolutely essential. Thank you for that. Um, Joe, I have a, a question here. So uh, someone is asking, if Biden wins, do you think he'll increase US Army presence in Afghanistan? And I do want to add, we did see, I believe last week that the Taliban endorsed Trump um, what do you think another Trump administration would look like in terms of policies towards Afghanistan? Uh, I was shocked that it was not even covered in, in, in U.S. election. If it was endorsed, if, if, if Taliban endorsed Biden or Obama, it would have been the whole uh, uh, fanfare in, in the U.S. media. But anyway... Uh, uh, the political establishment in Washington wants to withdraw from from uh, uh, from Afghanistan. It's the longest uh, U.S. war. It's tiring. There's no end goal, end game in it. There's no clear strategic benefits. Uh, and I think Biden will continue this uh, route of of having the Taliban. It's hard to once you make a deal with the Taliban and have Pompeo meet with them. It's going to be hard to undo this for anyone else. Uh, 
so uh, so uh, the problem is the big question is what will the army will do when Trump announced withdrawal recently it was uh, hailed by Taliban but the Pentagon didn't know about it the, the announcement withdrawal so uh, Trump uh, did lots of damage some damage with the military synchronization on this issue so Biden will have maybe do a little bit Obama tried to withdraw from Afghanistan. The, the army said no, and then he had to do a deal with them, and then they do a gradual withdrawal. Uh, the big question is, will the violence be continued to, to decline? The second question is, who's going to fill the vacuum the U.S. left? We have a civil war. We have Russia joining in, China going in. Um, so the problem is the deal now as it is, it's been negotiated. It's not strong enough. It's not solid enough uh, to have withdrawal. The question is... Will Taliban take over or not? There's enough trust with the Taliban or not? Uh, who's making decisions in the Taliban leadership now? What will Pakistan do if, if Biden shifted policy? So I think there's a lot of uh, unknown. Should be a given the withdrawal, especially with the uh, military establishment uh, uh, thinking. But I think Trump began a route that Biden will have to continue if the right conditions emerge. Uh, I think there's a fatigue from Afghanistan and, and many in Washington are ready to move on. If I can just add on to that, I, I, I want to agree with Joe. Um, and, you know, when we talk about the United States, the administration today, um, we, we talk about it as a, as a monolith, not recognizing that, for example, CENTCOM, the Pentagon, um, uh, and, and the executive are very different visions on, on foreign policy. Um, and, and as Joe said, the, the U.S. military is not so thrilled with a lot of foreign policy decisions that have been made in Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and um, in Syria, and also in in in, in, uh, in Afghanistan. I mean, just just <laughs> this has been a twenty-year war, and at the end of it, the um, U.S.-backed government has now been replaced by supporting the Taliban. This is completely against what the U.S. military intended for the region. Um, as the U.S. withdraws from Afghanistan, has withdrew from parts of Syria, Russia has already stepped in to fill this vacuum. And so the, the U.S. military is not, um, is, is not very happy, I think, with some of these decisions as reflected in, in, in CENTCOM. Now, also, the State Department under the Trump administration has been gutted, right? Much of these um, appointed seats continue to be empty. And so the way with which decision making has been made traditionally has fundamentally shifted. And so I think a Biden administration is going to go back to the way with which foreign policy decisions are made in um, in the state using the State Department, Pentagon, and, and CENTCOM. And so, I th I believe that there is a great division among U.S. military leadership and decisions that have been made by by the by the Trump administration. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to ask the, the final question, and we know today is the final presidential debate, and. Um, I was very happy to hear there's going to be a mute button. I think a lot of people will be very happy to hear that. Um, the topics, the, the debate topics are American families, race in America, climate change, national security, and leadership. Um, I'd love to get each one of your thoughts on what you think the candidates will talk about. I know Trump is unpredictable, but um, I'd love to get your, your take on what you think the debate will be like tonight. So Omar, if, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to start with you. Sure. I mean, just a couple of things that come to mind immediately is uh, as, as far as the national security framework is concerned. I mean, oddly enough, we're in this moment where Donald Trump 
views his winning argument different from the past when the emphasis was on our communities is to talk about Antifa and the riots and, and sort of like playing up, um, you know, the, the racial tensions that are happening domestically because of police shootings and, and the growing movement of Black lives and everything else. So I imagine that that will be his emphasis as far as security is concerned. And if foreign policy ever comes up, I think he will be a one-trick pony where the only thing that he will mention will be normalization deals. We're bringing peace to the Middle East like never before. And we brought, you know, we recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. He literally cannot say anything else about foreign policy. Um, and obviously from a, a more mature and thinking mindset, those would be foreign policy failures. Honestly, these are things that make America, you know, put America in a worse position as far as the world is concerned. Um, endorsing land theft and endorsing illegal recognition of, 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 of the acquisition of territories, this is setting a, a terrible precedent and it puts us in a weaker position to play a constructive role in terms of um, the role that America plays in setting the standard and in, in, in trying to promote a coherent framework for international law that we're, you know, obviously the U.S. has fallen short on that in many, many ways, but this is a drastic escalation in that direction. Um, and as far as climate change, an issue that I think is an existential issue for the human race, I genuinely do think that it's incredibly important. It's going to be one where um, unquestionably what Trump will say is some minute things about how he believes in clean air and clean water and, and what, you know, generic stuff without acknowledging, without acknowledging the fact that his administration is a science denier when it comes to climate change and the fact that he's pulled us out of so many international agreements that are critical to making sure that the climate of the planet is habitable for, for the future of human survival. Um, and I just hope that the moderator will have the wits to um, hold into account. Because one of the frustrating things for me watching is, I mean, obviously the presidential debate was all the interrupting, but even in the vice presidential debate, the fact that Pence got away with not answering a single question, but then turned around and, and accused uh, Kamala Harris of dodging questions was really a remarkable contrast that I felt like somebody had to be calling it out. And, and unfortunately, it didn't feel to me that Kamala Harris was aggressive enough in pointing these sorts of things out and that uh, the moderator also let it, let it go. So we'll see. And Joe, what are, what are your thoughts on uh, where you expect the debate to go tonight? Uh, I don't expect a lot of substance, of course. I mean, most debates has been, especially with Trump, a little bit uh, low on substance. So we will see a lot of sound bites. This might be his last chance, basically, to shift the dynamic of the race. I think it's going to be very aggressive. Uh, to basically rally the base, uh, and he cannot continue maybe to have the models uh, second have second thoughts about him in that sense. But I think he needs. He has been closing the gap in, in the polls in the last uh, week or so, uh, so he needs to basically, uh, or he would. I think he plans to touch on those issues, whether the the the, the economy and the Biden past and uh, uh, the scandals between quotations that's uh, emerged in the last few days. Uh, so I think he's going to play all his cards. This is his last move before the... Uh, and uh, obviously he has insisted on adding foreign policy onto the debate. He's been dying to say that he killed Soleimani, he killed uh, Baghdadi, he made those deals. Uh, he's been waiting for a moment to basically... Uh, so I think he will have this... Uh, uh, this debate uh, in, in some sort. But beyond that, I, I don't expect it to change the race. Most Americans have made that decisions. 
uh, you have three, maybe 3% 3 undecided voters, and I'm sure maybe they will not vote on election day. It's very polarizing. The views are very clear. The issue is, will people go to vote or not? This is going to be the main question. Most of them have made that decision. Especially with Trump, it's hard not to make a decision about him, whether you like him or you hate him. Uh, so, so I think it's going to be another show and uh, an attempt to basically change the last minute rally debate. But beyond that, I don't see a big shift uh, coming out of it. And Dahlia, what are, what are your thoughts on uh, what we, we might see tonight? You know, historically, the three presidential debates were supposed to cover domestic politics, the economy, and foreign policy mm -hmm. in three different debates. Um, that model has shifted. We have not talked about foreign policy whatsoever, and we probably won't tonight, um, which I think is quite telling because it's, it's, we've seen an administration that has put personal interests of the president before the national interest. And the fact that there has not been pushback on that is, is quite telling. Um, I mean, <laughs> secret Chinese bank accounts, uh, getting funding from personal funding from from different foreign governments that he has promised, you know, dictator security. Um, the fact that the the re several regions in the world have shifted under his um, presidential watch, and he's been supporting um, increasing authoritarian regimes from throughout the Middle East, but also in in, in the Philippines, is, is 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 quite telling that there is no question on foreign policy in these debates. But, you know, echoing what Joe said, I mean, most voters are, are already have their, made up their minds. The one block that hasn't are suburban white women. And this will be a debate that will be framed in the interest of suburban white women. And so you're hearing a lot of punditry saying he should be softer so he doesn't lose them because he's starting to lose them. You know, 54 percent of, um, of suburban white women college educated voted for Trump in the last election. And so the framing around tonight will be, is he going to be able to, to get them back because he lost them during the first debate? And, and that's just you know, not reflective of the interest of the country, but this is the way it's being framed. I think what we're going to see tonight is more of the first debate. The mute button will be politicized. He will be able to say, this is the media against me. Um, and that will again further his base. Will there be signals to the far right? Will be there be signals to other aspects of foreign policy? Um, it, it's it's the, you know the jury is out. We might um, we might see that he might have learned his lesson. But I think the bigger question today tonight will be: Will Joe Biden offer any answers? Um, answers to the country um, that's you know hurting socially, politically, but economically. Um, you know, COVID is we're we're about to enter our second wave, and and no one's talking about the extreme suffering um, that's happening throughout the country. So here's an opportunity for there to really be emerging leadership, which I think is going to be the last question of tonight. Um, but it could be that much of the country is, is polarized, has already made their decisions. And again, we're waiting for suburban white men to um, determine the future of the country. And so it's, it's in terms of a political science perspective, we know debates are never about issues, they're about charisma, but unfortunately we've entered a time period where we don't even take charismatic leadership seriously. Um, we are rallying behind whoever we're already behind and, and fomenting further division. And so let's hope the next period in the country begins some sort of healing, although the social scientist in me has yet to find evidence that that's going to happen anytime soon. Thank you so much. Um, this has been such an engaging discussion and we touched on so many different topics. So I really wanna thank each of you. Um, Holly had to leave early, so thank you to Holly as well. But thank you again for joining us and thank you 
for everyone who's online, who's watching us. Um, and yeah, have a good rest of your day and uh, we'll see where the, the debate goes tonight. Thank, Thank you. you, everyone. Thank you. Bye.